Good morning. If you would please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We'll be beginning in verse 35 today. You know, very few things translate from, well, with every culture. One of the things that does translate with every culture, though, is status. Now, what status looks like from culture to culture may vary from time period to time period. It may be different. But every culture, every time period concerns themselves with status. You look all the way back to uh, Genesis. There were concerns over who had the birthright. That was a status symbol. Who had the most uh, flocks? Who had the most animals? Who had the largest property. Those were status symbols. Today, it seems like everything is about status. People put themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars into debt to buy things they can't afford. Why? So they can look cool. You look at celebrities and they drive these super fancy supercars. A lot of them don't own those. They are just renting them for a few days just so that they can look cool. So they can have status. And if we look again throughout history and Pride and Prejudice set in Regency era England, uh, there are these two characters, Charlotte and Mr. Collins. Now Mr. Collins, if you're familiar with the story, he went to marry Elizabeth, but Elizabeth rejected him because he was kind of creepy. Um, so then Charlotte agrees to marry him. Charlotte was Elizabeth's best friend. And when Elizabeth confronts her, she says, I'm 27 years old. I have no money and no prospects. I'm a burden to my parents. That was her defense for why she married Mr. Collins. It wasn't out of love. It wasn't because of a genuine uh, care for him. It was because of status. She didn't want to be the old maid who was unmarried. We thrive on status. We live for status. But I want to ask the question, what gives people status in the kingdom of God? What gives people status in eternity? Well, here we see three different cases of status. It begins in verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many people who were rich put in much then one poor widow came, and she threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. 
basically, she threw in just about nothing. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, you do not look at the outside as man does. You look at what is on the inside. You do not care for great displays of wealth, but you care for great displays of faith in you. God, I pray that we would not live for this earth, but we would seek eternity, that we would seek to follow you, that we would seek to live for you, to sacrifice everything we have for the kingdom of God. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has to say. We ask this in your name. Amen. So first we see the status of Christ. And he brings up a, a question. He says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he quotes David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David in this is talking about the one who is to come, the one who is from the line of David, saying the Lord said to my Lord, the one that would come from him, from his family, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know who has more power and more authority than the richest people on earth? Their parents. They're able to lead them and guide them. Even the richest people on earth still go to their parents for advice. You still have parents. You likely go to them for questions, for advice, for help. How is it that David, this great king of Israel, says that the one who is to come is both his son and his Lord. That, that sounds like a paradox. It sounds like it doesn't work. It sounds like it shouldn't work. But if you look at Scripture, God has historically used unorthodox means or unconventional ways to bring about his will. Going back to Genesis, you have Jacob and Esau. Well, Esau was the older brother. Esau was the one who should have the birthright. Yet, God orchestrated it so that Jacob received the birthright. Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was one of the younger of 12 brothers. He wasn't the youngest, but he was one of the youngest of 12 brothers. Now, I can tell you right now, I am both a younger brother and an older brother. My whole life as a younger brother has been trying to overthrow my older brother. And my whole life as an older brother has been preventing my younger brother from overthrowing me. That's what brothers do. Yet Joseph had these dreams, these visions about his brothers bowing down to him. 
His brothers already hated him because he was their dad's favorite. But then he had these visions. And he told them about them. And so they threw him, or sold him into slavery. They said, yeah, we'll, we'll show you what's going to happen with those visions. They sold him into Egyptian slavery. And if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, then you know that after 20 years in slavery in Egypt, a lot of that spent in prison, there was a famine. There was a famine in the land. And through God's wisdom and foreknowledge, he was able to store up grain. So then you have all these nations coming to Egypt to, to get grain from them, to try and just sustain themselves through the famine. And this family, 11 children, shows up. Now this is a very condensed version, but they become reunited and they bow to him as their king, the one in charge of them. Even though they may be older, their father even bowed to him as he was the second in command of Egypt. God uses unorthodox means unconventional ways. Even we look at David, the one who is referenced here. The famous story of David and Goliath where David goes out and defeats the giant through the power of God. Who was the one who was supposed to defeat the, the giant? You look through 1 Samuel and there was a, a king before David. That king was King Saul and he was chosen because he was the biggest, the strongest. He was a, a full head over everybody else. He's the one that should have been going out to fight the giant. But instead, the younger brother of soldiers, the little shepherd boy who was coming just to check in on his family, to bring them things. Too small to even fit into a suit of armor. Goes out there and defeats Goliath. God uses the unconventional to accomplish his will. And so when we look at this, yes, Jesus is a descendant of King David. You read through the, the opening of the book of Matthew, and it takes you from Abraham to David, from David to uh, the, the captivity, from then the captivity to Jesus. It shows the line from David, or all the way back to Abraham, to Jesus. Jesus is of that line, but Jesus is the perfect one, the one who never sinned, the one who is the Messiah. You know, even in the Old Testament, they were putting their faith in a Messiah. We today look back 2,000 years to the Messiah that came, to Jesus on the cross. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a day when the Messiah would come and worshipped that eventual Messiah, David understood that he was submitting to someone from his line. David had the humility, even in, as the king, to bow and worship to his offspring, to his descendant. So how is it that Jesus is both his descendant and his Lord? Well, in heaven, there are no descendants, offspring, there are children of God. And Jesus Christ is the firstborn of many. 
Jesus is the firstborn son of God. Jesus is the one who has gone through death for us. And in him, we are brought into the family of God as children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus is the firstborn of that family. So David worshiped him not as a descendant, but as the firstborn brother. The firstborn brother in eternity. God does not let earthly standards uh, of who is a patriarch determine status. Instead, Jesus became the firstborn for us so that all of us would bow and worship to him, even his ancestors. Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the one that is both descended from David and that David worshipped. Next, we see the status of the scribes and their pride. That's what they were acting in, is pride. Then he said to them, verse 38, in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. See, the scribes were consumed with pride. They were consumed with their status. How many people were following them, appearing as though they were, they were super holy? That's why they go around in long robes to show off Oh, those are the scribes. We need to, they're, they're better than us. We need, to, we need to listen to them to show off who they were. And so they'd come into the marketplace and, and they'd make these long prayers, these big, drawn-out prayers that are very eloquent. It was all just a show. It was all just a, a show for their own pride to puff themselves up. And we can see that because even in all those things, there's nothing wrong with praying long. There's nothing wrong with having long prayers. There's nothing wrong with uh, using big words if that's how you talk. I will say, I had a pastor who would pray very long-winded. I'm talking like three, four, five minutes before uh, uh, meals with the church. There was a problem with that. We didn't like him praying before the meals. Um, because the food would get cold. But there's nothing wrong with praying for a, a long time. In fact, you should, at home with the Lord, when you're spending time with God, spend time in prayer. Spend time seeking Him. But that's not what these people were doing. That's not what the scribes were doing. They were saying these long prayers to seem like they're more spiritual than you. Like they're more spiritual than the other people. So that everyone would look at them and think, oh, that's, that's a holy person. It wasn't to connect with God. It was because of the people around them. <clears throat> that's all they cared about. And even in the, in the midst of all these things, we see in verse 40, who devour widows' houses. We know for a fact that they were bad because that's what they were doing. They were using their status, their, their religiousness, their religiosity to take advantage of the poor, to take advantage of those who had less. 
They were devouring widows' houses. They were taking stuff from the widows and saying that it was for God, but really it was just for themselves. In private, yes, pray for a long time. Take your time in prayer. In public, there is no need. You don't need to show off to us how good and perfect and holy you are. God is the one that judges your heart. God is the one that knows your heart. God is the one who will, whose opinion matters. <clears throat> Oftentimes when I ask people to pray, I get the response, well, I, I don't pray good. I say, well, that's a kind of a dumb thing to say. It's not about praying good. It's not about using the right words. It's about calling out to God. Asking for God's favor doesn't need to be 10 minutes long. Just a sentence calling to God, asking God for his blessing, for his favor. Earthly status and wealth will leave you empty. It does not follow you. You can have everything in the world. When you die, None of it comes with you. Your bank account will be dispersed to your family. It'll be taxed. Your house will be sold. What matters is your status with God. Your status with men does not matter. It has no effect on your life. It has no effect on your eternity. But then we see a contrast We see the people who devour widows' houses, and then we see the widow. Beginning in verse 41, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Now, these treasuries, this was not like these these plates where we pass them around and put a little dollar bill in. This was, it was a, a show. It was a big vat. And you put your money in and it clanks around and you knew who the rich people were because they would take their, their coin purse and dump it in and it would sound like a train. You know, it just, it's loud, it's reverberating. Everybody there can hear it. So I want you to think for a moment. I want you to envision this. Imagine that you are there and there's a line of people in front of you and each of those people are going up, putting their offering in. It's loud, it's... <clears throat> Everybody can see, oh, that, that person is really giving a lot. That person, they must be really spiritual because they're giving so much to the synagogue. And then you get up there. And all you have, two coins. And you're a little, clink, clink. There's no reverberation. It's too small of a sound for that. And everybody knows well, she gave almost nothing. Some translations where it says uh, she threw in two mites, which make a quadrans. Some translations say she threw in two mites, which make a penny. Putting a penny in the offering plate. You know what you can buy with a penny? Nothing. Yet what does Jesus say about this? The humility that she had, the 
the humility that she had taken on, how humble she was to go there and accept the onlooking eyes, accept the status that came with giving just two coins. Assuredly, I say to you, this widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Jesus is not bad at math. He's not just making a mistake. The reason why she has given so much more is because they all gave out of their abundance. They all gave because they were wealthy, because they had the money. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with giving from abundance. If God has blessed you, give abundantly. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had for the Lord. Friends, God does not need your money. God is not up in heaven thinking, I wish that I could save more people, but I, just, I don't have the budget for it. We have business meetings here. God doesn't. The reason that we give is not because God is helpless without our money. It's because we are helpless without God. We give as an act of devotion to the Lord, as an act of trusting in the Lord. Now with that in mind, let me ask you, who trusted in God more? Those who were dumping out the excess of their wealth or the lady who gave the little that she had left? God is able to do far more with those two mites, that one penny worth of money, than we could ever do with a budget of a billion dollars. You give us a billion dollars and you give God one penny, he will be far ahead of us. God does not require our money. God does not uh, sit there waiting for us to give. We give as an act of devotion and trust. Think about God. God created everything. The whole world. You go outside, look up at the stars, you look up at the sky, you look out at mountains and the ocean. God created all of that from nothing. Surely he can cause life change without a budget. It's not about what we give. It's about our devotion to the Lord. If we look back just a little bit at what we talked about last week, the greatest commandments. Jesus said the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Part of that is laying everything at God's feet. That doesn't mean that today you are to go, home, or go to the bank and empty out your bank account and put it in the offering. That doesn't mean give, give everything you have in the offering plate. What it means is lay everything that you have, everything that you are, at God's feet and ask him to use it. If that means giving uh, of time, give your time to the Lord. Give your time to the mission he's called you to, to the people around you who need the gospel. If God has called you to uh, open up your home for people who need a place to stay, use that home for the people who need a place to stay. God has called you to surrender your job. 
and go plant churches in, in the Amazon. Go and do that. Lay everything that you have and everything that you are at the feet of God. Lay them at his feet and let him do the work. Just as this woman, I'm sure she had thoughts of, well, what is my little offering going to do? What is the temple going to do with this little bit, these two mites? But she was faithful to give them. And through that, we see that she has been memorialized for the rest of time through Scripture. That God used those two mites to teach people about the gospel, to teach people about submission to the Lord, about giving everything we have to God. That's what God is able to do with little. That's what God is able to do with what we think of as nothing. He is able to do far more abundantly with our poverty than we could do with our wealth. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy, poor, give your life to the Lord. Give your life to Him. There are two places where your status on earth does not matter. There are two places where it doesn't matter. In heaven and in hell. What matters there is if you have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. If you have not given your life to the Lord, if you have not submitted to Him as Lord, would you do that this morning? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would lay it all at your feet. Everything that we have, everything that we are. God, all of that was a blessed gift from you. Everything that we have comes from you and you alone, not from our work, not from our investments, not from family. It comes from you. Those may be the vessels you have used, but everything that we are blessed with is from above. So Lord, I ask that we would return it to you, that we would not get caught up in the status that we have in this life. That we would not get caught up in the, the things that we see on this earth, but that we would be wrapped up in you focused on our eternal status, our status as a child of God. God, I pray that you would bless this congregation. If there is someone here who does not know you, that you would call them, bring them into the family of God. We ask this in your name. Amen.